Thank you so much. Um, it's my great pleasure to be uh, bringing the word of the Lord to you guys again. Um, now, again, this is a reminder to uh, families who are watching online. Uh, there are parts of this sermon that will be a little bit uh, explicit, so it's probably best if you explain to your children afterwards some of the meaning in here. Let's um, pray first. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you so much for your word, its power, its rawness. Uh, there are raw emotions here, Lord, um, and part of it is difficult, not because the Bible is difficult to understand, but because of uh, the difficulty lies in us, and sometimes our hearts don't like what it says. So we pray today, Lord, that you might give us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, so that we might respond to your word uh, with the right responses, uh, one that is in obedience, in humility, uh, and in gratefulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about 15 years ago, uh, one of my friends at church, let's call him Tom, uh, started a long-distance relationship with someone he met through the internet. Uh, Tom is an Australian living in Sydney, and um, uh, his girlfriend at the time was from another country. Um, and Tom absolutely loved this girl. Um, he would uh, often chat with her on the, online, and um, sometimes he would fly over to her, her country and spend some time with her. Uh, at the time, I was trying to warn Tom, you know, there are scammers out there who might use relationships like this as a way to migrate to Australia. And Tom says, I know, I know, but this girl is different. She really, really loves me. And her mother, oh man, <laughs> you know, she fully treats me as if I'm the son that she never had. So soon, Tom got married to this lady, and over the course of two years, he worked tirelessly trying to help her to migrate to Australia. And on the day she arrived in Australia, she said to Tom, I'm sorry, I never loved you, and I would like to leave now. And Tom was just absolutely gobsmacked. He was shocked. He grabbed the phone to his mother-in-law and said, what is going on here? And his mother-in-law said, my child, how could you be so naive? If you were Tom, what would you do? If you are someone who's trying to counsel Tom, what would you do? How do you deal with a spectacular betrayal from a loved one? And it's not just an issue for us. It's an issue for God as well. In last week's passage in Hosea chapter 1, we saw that God commanded a prophet named Hosea to marry an unfaithful lady named Gomer, who is supposed to be a symbol for Israel. And together they had two children. In today's passage, we find that God has taken Gomer to court. Here God does something that is extremely rare in the cultural context of Hosea's day. Uh, have a look at the passage. He says to the children of Gomer in verse 2, Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Um, like many culture, the Middle Eastern culture of Hosea's day is highly stratified which means it has various levels of, of authority, often according to age. 
not often the head of the family is the patriarch, and then uh, the wife is immediately following that. The children are generally considered the bottom tier in terms of authority. So it is never the place of the children to offer correction to the parents. Yet what God is doing here is that he's commanding the children of Goma to offer testimony against their own mother in court. And if you think that's not shocking enough, have a look at verse 4. He says, I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Here in the ESV, it literally translates to children of whoredom or children of prostitution. So why would God use such strong language? It's because Goma represents Israel, who is both a determined adulteress and a thankless beneficiary of God's grace. And God, in this case, is the tortured husband who has given Israel Nothing but care and love. So how would God respond to the spectacular betrayal from a loved one? And in today's passage, we're told that God responds to the betrayal by taking her to court and by courting her with an everlasting love. First, let's look at the court scenes. From verse 5 to verse 13, it's actually broken up in two separate court scenes. Each has a structure of an accusation followed by a promise of judgment. And each judgment is preceded by a therefore. Have a look at verse 5. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Here, the Hebrew is actually quite emphatic. It's not just, I will go after, but, but let me go after. There's a willingness and a persistence here in the attitude of the adulteress. She wants to be with her lovers, and she doesn't care how her husband feels. So who are these lovers of hers, and why is she, why is she so captivated by them? These lovers are a reference to the ancient Near Eastern fertility gods called Baals, whom Israel credits with giving her food, water, wool, linen, olive oil, and drink. What are these things? These are essentially agricultural bounties, which Israel believes is the result of worshipping the Baals. However, to God, this is like Israel committing spiritual adultery and receiving wages for her prostitution. So how would God respond to such a determined unfaithfulness? Let's look at the first therefore. Verse 6, Therefore I will block her path with thong bushes. I will war her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. As we can see, God's first judgment is one of containment, uh, that God will set up obstacles in her way so that although she wants to, she won't succeed in getting access to her lovers. This is probably an allusion to Israel's future exile to Babylon, which is outside the geographical center of Baal worship, so that Israel no longer can have access to the Baals. And then moving on to verse 8, we realize that adultery is not 
uh, Israel's only sin. And containment is not God's only response, because she's also a thankless beneficiary of God's grace. Have a look at verse, uh, verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they use for Baal. One of the most important reasons that people worshipped Baal back in the day was because Baal was known as a fertility deity, uh, and that had control of the weather. So in a mostly agricultural society, it is believed that if you want a good harvest, you'd worship Baal. It's for this reason that Baal was known as the king of the gods in the ancient, in, in the ancient Near East. In fact, the name Baal in Hebrew literally means master or lord. But here you might say, hold on a second, isn't God of the Bible the sole creator of the universe? Doesn't he control the rain and the sun? So why is Israel crediting Baal with giving them food? And that is exactly the point. And that's why it's so offensive to God to see his provisions to Israel being credited to the work of a false deity. It's like seeing somebody raised by their parents and when they grow up, calling someone else their father. It is unbelievable and is incredibly offensive. So how does God respond to this level of thanklessness? Have a look at the second therefore in the passage. Verse 9, Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. And then again in verse 12, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. This is almost an exact reversal of the agricultural bounties mentioned in verse 5, which Israel credits with Baal. By doing so, God is showing Israel who the real master of the universe is. It's almost as if God is telling Israel, you think the Baals gave you all of this? You think the Baals gave you the rain and the sun? Well, let me show you who really gave you the sun and the rain. However, this judgment is more than just teaching Israel a lesson, like a kind of cosmic, I told you so. It's actually meant to change Israel's heart. Have a look at verse 10. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. In other words, the reason God promises to take away these earthly blessings is to help Israel turn back to himself. So that by realizing that God is the ultimate provider of these good things, God's people might thank God instead of the Baals. In other words, for God to continue providing blessings to a thankless people is to desensitize them to grace. So much so that grace is no longer considered an undeserved favor, but a personal right. As many of you know, uh, before Taiwan, we served in a place that was quite poor, uh, in what the locals considered a fourth-tier or a fifth-tier city. 
Many of the students that we have served amongst came from places of back-breaking poverty. Uh, one girl that we served had only had her first pair of shoes in year three in primary school. And many missionaries we served with um, truly loved the locals. And some of the locals responded uh, by coming to the Lord as a, result, as a result of their love. However, there are some who started treating these acts of love as a personal right. So much so that when they come to our house, they expected to be given a free meal. They expected to receive nothing but encouragement. They expected to be given unfettered grace. Over time, these attitudes started to have an effect on their relationship with God. So much so that God, for some of them, became a sort of a divine vending machine. Somebody whose job it is to give them what they wanted. So how do you minister to someone that has started to treat grace as a right? How do you work with someone who has started to become desensitized to grace? Well, you do what God does to Israel. Stop being an enabler. Let them suffer through the natural consequences of their own actions and pray that in due time, they will remember the Lord's ways and turn back to God. You know, there's a saying in English that pretty much captures this. Um, The saying goes, you can drag a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink. As ministers of God's word, we need to know our limits. And sometimes the best thing we can do is to withdraw unfettered grace so that they might stop treating grace as if it's a personal right. So far in Hosea chapter 2, we've seen God bring Israel to a family court. There, the judge finds Israel guilty of both being a determined adulteress and a thankless beneficiary. Now, if this is your spouse, what would you do? Well, the average Australian will probably divorce this person and then sue them for personal damages. But what God does from verse 14 onwards is just absolutely astonishing. Because here, it's meant to be the third and the last therefore. So we're expecting some kind of judgment here. But instead of punishing Israel with an everlasting fire, he courts Israel with an everlasting love. Have a look at the third and final therefore in this passage. Verse 14, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the day of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Here God doesn't push her away. Instead, he shows tenderness and love towards her. The word translated as allure here is actually a word often used in Jewish courtship. Here God is saying that he will entice Israel to pursue her back to himself, just like Israel did back in the Exodus out of Egypt. Now, to this, my guess is that the modern Australian might ask, why is God so dull? Why is he so persistent? Why can't he just seek like a friendly divorce like all the nice middle-class families out there? And the reason that God refuses to let go of Israel 
is because God isn't just the husband of Israel. He is also the creator of Israel. When describing the relationship between God and Israel, marriage is one of, only one of the many metaphors that is used. Because God is also the one that raised Israel from the dust. He is also the one who rescued Israel from the clutches of certain death when he led them through the Red Sea. And God is the one who went before Israel in battles as they conquered their enemies and settled in the promised land. And that's why God says in Isaiah 49:15, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And that you refers to Israel. And it's for this reason God will not give up on Israel. Because he loves Israel too much for that. But any of us who came from broken relationships know that fixing a broken relationship by pretending that nothing has happened is not the way. Especially if the betrayal took place in a public context. There is simply too much shame that needs to be covered up. There is simply too much filth that has been spilled that needs to be cleansed. There are consequences that need to be dealt with. In other words, this broken relationship between Israel and God needs a public and complete restoration. And such a restoration is exactly what's been promised from verse 16 to 23. Have a look, the first one, it's restoration from falsehood. Verse 16, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bowels from her, her lips. No longer will her, their names be invoked. In verse 16, uh, Hosea actually employs the play on word because the Hebrew word for my master is, is actually the same as the name of Baal. Um, basically, what God promised is that not only will the worship, will, will the worship of Baal be stopped, People will not even remember that this deity even existed. And isn't that reassuring to know that, that apart from the pages of the Bible and a couple of museums out there, you will not even find the names of Baal being mentioned anywhere or find a statue of Baal. Baal worship, as far as we're concerned, has ceased to exist. And that is proof that this prophecy has already been fulfilled. Secondly, God will bring restoration to all creation. Look at verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. And then again in verse 21. In that day, I will respond, declared the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the, the new wine and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. Why is this important? Because these are the reversal of curses on Israel due to her unfaithfulness. Because in Old Testament theology, Israel was meant to be God's representative to the nations. So that her disobedience matters not only to people, but also to creation in general. I love how from verse 21 to 22 has this cascading effect of God, sky, earth, grain, and finally ending in Jezreel, 
which is meant to be the breadbasket of northern Israel. And its name literally means, I sow, or I plant. And this shows that not only will this restoration impact creation in general, it will impact Israel in particular. And picking up on the wordplay of Jezreel, the Lord ushers in the third restoration, which is restoration of Israel as a people. Have a look at verse 23. I will plant, which is Jezreel, her, for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who are called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Remember the two children of of Hosea um, that Gomer, the unfaithful wife, gave birth to? What are their names? Lo-Ruhamah and Lo-Ami. And Lo-Ruhamah means not loved, and Lo-Ami means not my people. Basically, yes, this is yet another play on word. This verse literally reads like, I will show Ruhamah to those to the one called Lo-Ruhama. And I will say to those called Lo-Ami, Ami. Essentially, this is a reversal of, of, uh, of what happened in Hosea 1. Because now these names no longer symbolize God's judgment, but instead they symbolize God's welcoming embrace. Through this, God promises to create a new people from people that were previously outside of the kingdom. And as, at this point, if you're one of the original readers of Hosea, you might say, that sounds wonderful, but how can I know that this is going to be real? What evidence do you give that this is going to happen one day? And that's a very good question. And I want to point you to two things. Firstly, have you realized the number of times that the first person pronoun of I was used? Uh, you don't have to count them all, by the way. But between verse 14 and 23, I counted no less than 15 times that the Lord used I will. What does this mean? It means that God alone is singularly responsible for driving this restoration. All the motivation and the momentum rests with Him. Essentially, God is banking His honor and His reputation as the creator of the universe on this restoration. And he is saying, if I fail to make this happen, I am no longer trustworthy. Secondly, careful listeners would have noticed that I skipped a couple verses between verse 19 and 20. The reason I did that is because these verses hold the key to understanding not only the why of these restorations, but the how of these restorations. In other words, These verses give us a glimpse of what God is going to do to make it happen. Have a look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now, betrothals is a bit of a ritual that no longer gets practiced in Australia, but it is the ritual that is commonly practiced in most places in the world. In the Middle Eastern culture, normally a price is paid by the groom to the bride's family. And when that price is accepted, it's basically the final step in the courting process. The marriage is as good as done. The actual wedding is just icing on the cake. 
However, this time, the betrothal price is not money, but a list of attributes. Let's look at them. There's righteousness, justice, love, compassion, faithfulness, and there's even an adverb of time, which is forever. Whose attributes are these, guys? Who can you put next to righteousness, justice, love? These are the attributes of God himself, because nothing else can offer perfect righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. What does this mean, guys? It means God's betrothal price to win back his bride is none other than offering himself. And this event will take place on a day in the future. If you were to ask me, what happened to Tom's marriage? I'd say I don't know. Uh, He left our church and I left Australia. (laughs) We just didn't keep in contact. But I do know what happened to God's marriage with Israel. One day, God showed exactly how he pursued his people. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. And in his life, he demonstrated perfect righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, we said, no way. And we pursued alternative gods, And just like the old Israel, we betrayed him, we ripped him apart, and we joined the chorus of those screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And yet Jesus prayed as we were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. On the cross, Jesus Christ was faithful to the end. And when he rose from the grave on the third day, he conquered death. And from that day onwards, forever, that word forever became synonymous with his name. Jesus Christ is the betrothal price, and he paid it with his own life so that the Holy Spirit could live in God's people, turning their hearts of stone into a heart of flesh, a a heart that can respond to God's loving embrace. And in place of old Israel, A new Israel is born, which is the universal church. It's the body of believers, a body of Christ followers from all over the world. And you know what? I love this church. I love this new Israel because this new Israel is full of people who were previously far away from God. People who were called low Ruhamas and low Amis, but now they're called my beloved, and my people. And if this is not the greatest love story you've ever read, I don't know what is. So if you're part of this story, how would you respond to someone who has betrayed you? Well, there are two choices. You can either leave them or pursue them for reconciliation. Sometimes both choices are valid in Christian ethics because even though we're commanded to forgive those who sinned against us. Reconciliation often takes two to to, to tangle. However, although both choices are valid in terms of Christian ethics, which one is more beautiful? I understand that reconciliation can be difficult because it's more risque. Because when you do that, you open yourself to possible betrayal 
by the same person again. And that's why very few people choose this path. But, that, but as God took on a risk and pursued Israel, we too can become risk takers and pursue the path of reconciliation. Furthermore, as people who have experienced reconciliation, I'm going to go out on a limb here and try to apply this passage to something controversial today. Um, that is the continuing, ten- the, the continuing tension between the First Nations people of Australia and the children of the colonizers. Hands up if you had a chat with a co-worker or a, a fellow classmate about this thing called the voice. <laughs> yeah. I th- I'm sure a lot of you have. I mean, in fact, a group of us at a picnic the other day that my wife joined was actually talking about this very issue. Now, as many of you, um, as many of you guys know, we've been away from Australia for more than four years. And one of the first things that I had to do when I came back was to actually help adjudicate between my father-in-law and his wife on the voice. Uh, my father-in-law is actually from England. Uh, so I asked him, what is the voice? Um, and since then, I had learned a little bit more about this topic. And basically what it is, is that it's a referendum on whether Australia should allow more political power to the leaders of Aboriginal uh, people. Um, that's roughly what it is. Um, now, the thing is that my gut feeling is that regardless of how the referendum is going to go, the tension between Aboriginal Australians and Anglo-Australians will not go away anytime soon. <laughs> do, you, do you get the sense as well? You know, on one hand, the law forbids targeting people for the sins of their forefathers. But you cannot disagree with the fact that there are people in Australia who are sitting on old money and who are living on land pillaged from the original landowners. Therefore, they are anxious about any shifting of political power towards Aboriginal Australians because they're scared of retribution. At one point, my father-in-law said, what if they ask us to go back to England? On the other hand, Aboriginal Australians live in the legacy of past traumas. Their lands have been taken. 90% of of their people wiped out. And as Christians, we should feel genuine pain for the suffering they went through. However, based on my conversations with several teachers who taught in Aboriginal communities, there is also genuine victimhood going on there. So much so, there's a reluctance to let go of past hurts. And there's a reluctance to let go of the hatred to the white man. Slowly, this victimhood destroyed them from within. And this partly explains why, statistically speaking, crime rates and alcohol abuse are much higher in Aboriginal communities than others. So what do you do? You can bet your bottom dollar it's not going to end with the voice. And this is where we as Christians, especially those who came from migrant backgrounds, might be able to help as mediators. Because in order to be a mediator, this person has to be outside of that conflict. Because we don't share these narratives, guys. Like many of you, my parents came to Australia with nothing but a suitcase and the clothes on their backs. Our narrative is one of hard work, Funding favor, 
and settling in the lucky country. I'm neither a beneficiary of colonization or a nor a victim of colonization. Now, I'm not suggesting whether you should vote for the voice, but I hope my point is clear. As Christians, as someone who has already experienced reconciliation with God, as someone who is called to forgive those who sinned against us, we can become agents of reconciliation and mediation to an increasingly polarizing society. So my hope is that next time you're having lunch with someone at work, next time you're sitting on the lawn of university chatting to your classmates, next time you're chatting with moms at a kid playgroup, consider it an opportunity to weigh in with a uniquely Christian perspective on this topic. Perhaps you can share stories of how God helped you out of victimhood or how the gospel helped you to mend a broken relationship. Whatever it is, I hope that these stories can become an anchor or a bridge to share the most beautiful story in the world of how the God of the universe reconciled with a sinful people, of how he won back the love of his unfaithful spouse through becoming one of us and dying for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we're living in troubled times. Uh, there's brokenness all around here. There's brokenness at a personal level that few of us um, go through life without experiencing um, uh, people that, don't talk, that no longer talk to us anymore. Um, we also acknowledge that this brokenness happens at a social level, at a society level as well. Um, and we're living in an increasingly polarized world. But we have hope because you have called out to us and you have pursued us with an everlasting love, even though we're sinners. And you've single-handedly drove this reconciliation process so that we as people who were previously far away could be called your people and your loved one. And we pray that as people who have experienced this transformative power, that we can be agents of transformation, of mediation, of reconciliation, and a voice for reason in this society. Help us, Lord, to have wisdom in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.